Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. One of the things I think happened that were confusing to a lot of participants is these models were mixed up. You know, was this a, hey, we're all in it together, we're sharing, um, we're sort of, we're participants in a shared project, or is this just a tit-for-tat culture where um, you find who you want to do sort of reciprocal deals with, or is this a, a kind of marketplace where people are hawking their wares for prices? Those are the insightful words of Julian Waters Lynch. Jules is a lecturer at RMIT University in innovation, entrepreneurship, and organizational design. We connected many years ago, probably in a co-working space of some sort, when Jules was running Type Human and I was running Purposeful. Jules appeared recently on the podcast to present some of his amazing work on studying startup innovation in Victoria alongside Judy Anderson, CEO of Startup Victoria. So I highly recommend you check that one out too for some further background on Jules. I invited Jules to come on the show as I was fascinated by the anthropological and academic lens through which he views the world and explains much of what is happening in entrepreneurship locally today. He brings a very different perspective and has previously been a jazz musician, which I think is pretty awesome too. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to our Patreon family, of which Jules is a member, as is last week's guest, Levi. So a big thanks to those two champions for being on the show and for seeing its value and supporting its continued production. Thank you also to Sue, Tanvir, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Linton, Joe, B, and Will for your kind support. This amazing group helps me to shape the direction of the podcast through their ideas, advice, guest referrals, and ongoing feedback. If you want to support the growth and future sustainability of Humans of Purpose, I encourage you to join our Patreon community. To support us, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humansofpurpose. Jules and I recorded this one about two weeks ago remotely via Zoom. We talked a lot about the place of co-working in society, how COVID may reshape how we work and live, and also a lot about human behaviour. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jules and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Mine too, so we'll kick off. Well, Jules, uh, terrific to have you here. Uh, it's good to catch up, albeit remotely. Jules, you are the uh, you are a lecturer in innovation, entrepreneurship, and organisational design at RMIT. Welcome back. Great to be here. Yeah, albeit remotely. Um, but we did catch up before. You've been to my house. You've sampled my fine whiskey uh, in better days when social distance was not such a uh, point of concern. <laughs> Man, I was worried about this podcast because I don't have whiskey here. I was <laughs> when we talked about it, I thought I'll have to get some whiskey delivered. Um, I, I don't know how you've been going with all this. We've been actually healthier. I, I can imagine it going either way, right? You either just absolutely. Up. Absolutely, it could go either way. I know people who have been smashing whiskey and other beverages because when I do a catch-up Zoom with them, there's always whiskey in the screen. And I actually came across a funny study. It wasn't funny, but it was a study today saying that the wealthier suburbs have drastically increased their alcohol consumption, something like 186% over the past four weeks, whereas the lower socioeconomic suburbs that are struggling a bit more have um, dropped their consumption a few percent. And that's interesting. I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about it. But there's also you see this divide with working from home that you know once the income's over a hundred thousand um, per annum, you've got knowledge workers. It's just much easier for them to do this um, under not so much. So 
Um, but yeah, I, we've been in a positive sense drinking less, but I, I, I kind of miss it right now. It's not a podcast with Mike without whiskey. <laughs> well said. Jules, I'd love you to talk a bit, um, do a bit of an introduction to yourself and your journey um, to where we are today and where you are today in your role. There's the obvious COVID um, overlays to get through and sort of chat about how you're going in your role currently. And um, also I'd like to really chat about your, some of your work um, with space, um, you know, co-working and how that would be impacted by something like this and what the future holds. But maybe to start off with just an intro to your journey and how you found yourself in this role yeah sure so as you kindly said i'm currently a lecturer in entrepreneurship and innovation and uh org design at rmit um how'd i get here well i <laughs> to become an academic you do a phd uh about 2012 i think i started my phd um and you know before that i'd worked as a musician i'd studied uh, so i was like kind of it went, the sequence went economics. Sorry, my cat's just sitting on my keyboard. I'm getting it all here. <laughs> You're um, right. The, it went study economics, philosophy, interested in climate change, get like a lot of people in their early 20s, not quite sure about what I wanted to do, thinking somehow working as a jazz musician would be a, a good answer to that. Um, so I did that for a number of years and then um, ended up graduating with an international studies degree and um, worked more in social entrepreneurship in Melbourne. So I used to work for the Foundation for Young Australians. Um, Quarter life crisis, which uh, (laughs) we can talk about later, but um, several years later, my early thirties, I found myself um, sitting in a co-working space going, well, what, what, this is interesting. This was right at the beginning of that movement, at least in in Melbourne. Um, And I guess at that time I was thinking a lot about uh, what people wanted out of work, what technology meant in terms of changing how we organize and where we do work. And I, I guess I had this background of thinking um, in the arts, you know, as a musician, you're at home a lot, you know, <laughs> you're practicing a lot. And the, the time you actually perform is fairly small compared to what you've got to do. And it's a very self-driven, um, you know, you have to be disciplined and, and self-managed um, so I did a PhD about co-working, um, really like an anthropologist. So I spent time in the early spaces in Melbourne, I, um, you know, what they call participant observation. So I, I did it. I, I recorded my own experiences. I interviewed people. I took photos. I looked at social media, etc. Um, so I finished that a few years ago, and I've been working in academia since. That's a great uh, recap. And, and when you talk about the anthropological perspective to um, co-work, you make me think a bit of Edinburgh, like, you know, you're going fully uh, remote into some tribe that's unknown in, in the Amazon and learning the customs and the rituals. Um, that's, what I, that's what I think of when I hear anthropology. What's it, what's it actually like to observe customs and practices in a more modern kind of work setting? Yeah. I, so the term that's often used um, outside of anthropology is ethnography. Right, so ethno as in culture, graphy, writing, the, the kind of one-on-one often starts that way. We go back to the Greek. Um, and you can find papers saying anthropology is not ethnography and vice versa, but ethnography is really the, the, the research technique. Um, and the essence of it is to spend time in the context where the people you're studying are. And if you, if you contrast that with different ways of doing social research, like sending them a survey where they, they fill it out and you don't know if they're full of shit, you, you don't know if they're filling it out that day because, you know, their answers are post or pre-coffee or whatever, right? You, you, you really don't know anything else about the context in which they're responding. 
Um, but clearly the benefit is you can talk to, you can get information from a lot of people if you do surveys, right? Um, another way is doing interviews like this, sort of where you, you only spend time with them during the period of the interview. Um, so qualitative interviews, that's great too. Um, but ethnographers would say, well, you miss a lot about the context in which people are and that actually there's, there's usually a significant gap between what people say and what they do. Um, so ethnography is the, the research technique that anthropologists tend to use, um, but it travelled, in the 20th century, it travelled outside of the discipline of anthropology to sociology and then into business, you know. It's a bit avant-garde still within management, but um, it, it's a great way to understand what the hell people are doing at work, right, is to actually sit there and watch them and try and work out why these weird rituals that you have in the workplace um, exist. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we, we watch The Office and we look at Dilbert cartoons and it, it's very easy to make fun of many of the things that happen in the workplace, right? Um, so this has been done in conventional organisations, but... When co-working was kicking off, um, you know, in some ways, 10 years later, uh, it doesn't, some aspects don't seem as interesting as it becomes standardized. But at the time, there was a sense of what the hell is this working alone together thing mean, right? Like, why, why is it a bunch of early stage entrepreneurs or freelancers sitting next to each other, sharing information, crafting a kind of organizing culture, even though they're not members of the same organization? So this was the, the puzzle to work out um, and the interesting thing to, to explore there. And so, you know, I always get through a, a couple of minutes of answer and then go, to answer your question, <laughs> what, what you said is, like, what does it mean to be an ethnographer? Uh, just quickly, I, I think what's fascinating about it is you have to, there's this, there's this idea of making the familiar strange, right? Um, this kind of an old um, trope. In, in ethnography and you have to develop a, a sort of sensitivity to practices that other people might overlook. I mean, that's the art of it, you know, the things that, that are just the way we do things around here for, for members of a culture. Part of the ethnographer's job is to notice them, notice very small things that people do. A friend of mine um, that did sort of design ethnography, he used to use this example. He says, if you ask someone, how they uh, put sugar in a, use a packet of sugar, put it in tea or coffee. They'll say they tear the top off and pour it in. But if you ask them to show you, you'll see that they pick it up and they shake it first, you know, to get the sugar down. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so they, they miss some of the critical steps in there. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's just a cute way of illustrating this gap between what people say, say in an interview context, and what they actually do in practice. Right? That's one of my favourite, um, I, I suppose, uh, ironies or tr tricky parts of research because we tend to do a lot of research today by survey and I think that's that classic situation where in a survey, you know, um, you'll ask somebody what they do or what they intend to do or how they've previously done things and how they'll answer can be so different from what they actually do and you kind of find that out by also taking notice of behaviours but it strikes me uh, as you, your approach is actually really interesting because you, you've instead to, to de-bias that in a way you just watch what people do and then write about it and then talk to them about that maybe after you've seen it. Yeah a lot of it's kind of triangulating so you said this in the interview and then I observe this and then I also experience it myself and find myself saying this thing but feeling this way you know, there's these different data points. And a good ethnography is is usually 
um, presented as a monograph, so a kind of story of the culture of a people, if you like. This was a classic um, thing that anthropologists would return from triumphantly from the village, you know. <laughs> and say, all right, boom, the, the, thump it on the table and say, now we understand the Kanak people or whatever it is. And clearly that is just sounds horribly, um, you know, colonial and obsolete now. So anthropology itself underwent a kind of crisis from in the 80s where um, they started to go, well, we can't send Europeans into non-European contexts and say we're going to um, describe the culture, right? So there was this big movement around um, including your own experience uh, within that and sort of say, well, I can't really talk so much with the other people, but here's how I'm experiencing this. Um, it got a bit navel-gazing. But the other thing that happened is those techniques moved out into, um, you know, urban ethnography, trying to understand cultures that you're part of or that you're um, that are not foreign in, in the way we typically think of it. Yeah, so it's a triangulation of all those things. Now, obviously, what you sacrifice when you do that, when you're trying to put together your own experiences, your own observations, interviews, etc., is scale and generalizability. What you can end up with is a very rich or, or so say thick description of a particular people and place and time and the question is always well how generalizable is it like jules you spent a couple of years in hub melbourne and inspire nine and these these various haunts around melbourne hanging out effectively with a group of people you got to know that group pretty well but how relevant is that to something that's happening in in berlin or um you know, Brazil for that matter. So, so that's an interesting point. No, I mean, because I, th I find, you know, every research method has its fundamental flaw in, um, you know, how generalizable is it? And you, you see that with other methodologies too that are far less, um, I suppose you could say, experiential or behaviorist. Like, you know, you might look at randomized controlled trials and everyone says this is the gold standard in medicine or global health. But, you know, um, doing something in the Congo is very different to doing it in India. And how useful is something that works in the Congo for India? Yeah, I mean, th these are ongoing debates in social science right mm. i mean one thing i'd say is it's one thing if you're doing randomized control trial for um something that'll affect the physical the biological human body which we assume wouldn't be that different might be wrong on certain issues but we assume a kind of um, generalizability uh, across that although these tests as we're, we're in the midst of now with the COVID 19 vaccines and things i mean th these are are often far more uncertain and contingent than the way science is popularly reported. You know, science is far more uncertain, if you like, um, than, than sometimes the way we like to talk about it in a popular sense. Absolutely. But, yeah, but I was just going to make the point that if you sure. move into social practices or culture, I mean, the, the, these are very hard to generalise because they don't stay static, right? So yep. you, you might be able to make a statement that's true about a particular culture. But the irony is if that becomes sort of... If, if your point, as true as it is, becomes widely understood or accepted, people then take that as information which might then change their practices, right? So if I say something like, um, well, co-working can foster friendships and, and or co-working can um, improve opportunities for innovation, I mean, that very idea getting out starts to have an effect on society. It starts to shape who turns up to co-work. It starts to shape views and practices, etc. So you have these second-order effects, um, and that's why producing knowledge, stable knowledge about human societies is so, is such a difficult task to, to, you know, to form kind of enduring truths, if you like.
Yeah, well, you've certainly picked an interesting and challenging field. What did you, you immerse yourself in co-work spaces and the anthropology of co-working for some time. What do you come away with as your kind of, um, your fundamental truths about uh, the co-work space and its uh, place in society? <laughs> you ask a, a kind of nightmarish question for, you know, <laughs> so just boil it down, right? You know, you write this 400 page thing. And Don't waste my time, Jules. I'm not going to read your PhD. Just tell me the answers now. Give me, give me the elevator pitch, right? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So, look, I mean, there'd be a few ways we could take this. One is um, what I found, I did most of my empirical research, say, between 2012 to about 2015. Um, so that was a particular phase of co-working and heavily on the 2012, 13, 14, the early phase. Um, and I will, I will answer that. I won't shirk it. But I think it would be good to get to what happened with co-working and then what does it mean now that half the population is effectively working from home? You know, what does it mean for the future, right? Um, I mean, what, what, what I found is you know, I ask these questions, you know, why do people co-work? How do they co-work? And how does their experience change over time? And when you do, you do a PhD, um, you do academic research, I mean, it's, it's usually not just, hey, here's some interesting stories about a group of people, but you're looking to make this theoretical contribution. Um, and certainly if you want to get published <laughs> in, in good journals, you have, to, you have to talk in the language of theory. Um, so on one level, uh, you know, there was some practical or empirical things that came out of my own research, which is, well, why do people co-work? I said there were these, I mapped these four, um, these four kind of early reasons um, that many of the people that turned up initially had come to the conclusion that standard forms of employment didn't work for them, right? So they'd chosen to leave standard organizational employment and they were in this explorative phase of self-employment. And then there were two classes of people within that. Um, that were quite distinct. There were what we might think of as ambitious entrepreneurs that wanted to start what we think of as startups today that would scale, you know, grow, they'd have other employees, etc. maybe um, have an exit strategy a few years down the track. And then there were this other class of um, people that wanted to remain solo self-employed. The, 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 their vision of work was to, to do interesting work, well-paid, but not work all the time and certainly not have to manage other people or etc. They're just... Um, and so, so that was one part of it. And the other part was this, this story, and this might be quite temporally specific to the post-GFC moment, but there was this story of searching for more meaning through work. Um, a lot of people had felt um, that, that they might have had negative experiences as employees, but they'd also felt a kind of disgust or a sense of a legit, legitimacy crisis with major institutions at that time. I think a lot of that has actually stayed with us, right? I mean, how many people feel great about banks or <laughs> even feel great about large charities or whatever? So there was what, it, what Jürgen Habermas called a legitimation crisis with some of these um, major institutions, standard forms of employment. So a lot of people were looking for alternative ways of doing things, you know, I framed that as searching for more meaning. And in that context, co-working became a kind of portal or a focal point for a lot of these concerns and interests. And, this is very much what we now think of as the first phase of co-working. Someone's called the avant-garde or the pioneering phase where you had a bunch of organizational hippies, if you like, turning up, congregating. It had a, a vaguely Burning Man feeling. Um, <laughs> what I now think of is phase two, um, sometimes called the, the real estate centric or the neo-corporate turn. I mean, this is characterized by, by WeWork. Um, you know, co-working drastically changed from about 2014, 15. 
people in suits started turning up, right? Um, real estate actors started saying, hey, we, we want to do co-working. They, often, admittedly, they call it flexible real estate or whatever. Hmm. Um, WeWork's skyrocketing valuation started to turn heads. And, of course, we can talk about that, but that ended in tears. I'd love to talk about that. I just listened to the um, the series of Adam Newman and strolling around the office drinking uh, beers, not wearing shoes. It's just how how on point could you get? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, they became like the poster child for uh, what someone's called foie gras capitalism, right? It was just (laughs) – WeWork wasn't a bad business, but it was just so stuffed full of capital Hmm. um, that it it kind of became doomed. Um, But I I think – Getting back to these three phases, you know, there's, there's certainly this real estate-centric kind of neo-corporate phase where, ironically, it, it really recapitulated a lot of the service office industry, right? Private offices, you got corporate players, a, a different customer started turning up, and a lot of the those pioneering people um, actually became alienated from it. <clears throat> they stopped going, they or they found their own spaces, etc. And one paper I like that came out last year talks about this third wave of co-working. These are guys in um, Italy called Alessandro um, Gandini and Alberto Cossu. And they talk about this resilient phase of co-working where, that they see in rural places or the more cooperative forms. And in many ways, it, um, it looks quite similar to that early phase. Um, more emphasis on social interaction, collaborative dynamics, etc. Often a greater link to the local economy or community. Um, much less focused on basically uh, flexible office space, much more focused on the community dynamic, but usually that means a different kind of business model, one where participants have more of a stake in it. So it's kind of an empirical story like that of these three phases that I think maps to my own observations. And then if we wanted to get nerdy and theoretical, what I argued was, you know, when people come together like this, um, when they're working around each other, but they're not members of the same organisation, they produce what I called an immaterial commons. Um, so that's, that's a shared pool of information, but also affect and emotion, right? Like what we, what, what in the, the, the you know, Marbo, it's a vibe, right? To, to quote a famous Australian <laughs> film, right? So we produce a vibe together. And that's a kind of, you can think of that as a kind of resource. Yeah. Um, and now it's a very subtle resource, albeit, but atmospheres themselves are a form of they, they affect how we work they affect how we relate to each other is that kind of like um culture like or creating a culture you could call it that i mean the, the both these terms are uh, notoriously a little nebulous um sometimes culture i, I think of as a more uh, like a higher altitude concept right like we mm. talk about you know the culture of australia the culture maybe of melbourne the culture of an organization but we don't normally talk about the culture of a room um maybe you could but, but a word like th- this room has a vibe or this, this room, has, there's an atmosphere here. Um, but just to call you out on that for a second, didn't you think that kind of a big part of what WeWork um, coined as their value proposition was this obsession with mission and kind of vibe and, you know, putting things like kombucha taps everywhere and, you know, having this kind of organic setup? They, it seems like they tried very hard to create that vibe in almost a culture way that underpinned WeWork. Well, they certainly did. I mean, I think they started off quite genuinely. They, I mean, their first business um, from memory. You would, so you listened to the, the We Crashed podcast episodes, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, very much fun. Definitely endorse them, right? Um, <laughs> and some good Scott Galloway quote, quotes on that, yoga yep. dabble and all the rest, right? So, I mean, my sense is they started quite genuinely. They had, um, I think their first business had a sustainability focus or office focus and it 
Um, what they tried to do was scale that vibe um, very quickly. In, in a way, this is 101 of the startup playbook, right? Um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you scale this thing um, fast? I, I, I mean, I guess the conclusion I come to is trying to scale community. Just, it's a very difficult concept. You tend to destroy the very thing, the very good. Just like if you try to introduce, I don't know, money between friendship or romantic partners. Yeah. The certain, the certain, the certain things you can do to to um, something that's valuable that actually um, diminishes it, right? So yeah, we work with trying to do that. They were trying to do it by sticking kombucha and beer. Um, but look, I, I've spoken to, I've got friends that are former employees that we work, and they say. Look, I didn't think we were really a co-working space after the first few years. We were we were a real estate player. Um, yep. And I think many of the most interesting things about them, I mean, it's easy to laugh at them now, um, and they, they make good, <laughs> I mean, this, the, the Adam Newman excesses make for good um, popcorn kind of listening. Um, and it seems ridiculous also now, given the, the current economic climate. But they actually were doing some interesting things around vertical integration in the real estate industry. They, I mean, they were trying to develop a model where they could build these things very quickly. Um, yeah. But I, I saw that as drifting quite far from the sort of social and cultural dimension of co-working that I was much more interested in. A hundred percent. And that's what I was going to say is that it seems like your focus was far more on the kind of um, the social underpinnings of how a um, organism like that kind of evolves. And um, that's that's like quite interesting. And I, I find the anthropological perspective very interesting. I find the that kind of shift from cultural spaces to corporate spaces uh to be like that kind of defining moment where maybe a lot of that the nice things that we all wanted uh from co-work spaces kind of fades away a little bit yeah i mean that's what i became fascinated with and and this sort of interaction between i guess informal um social connections so when we think of friendship or associates friends community with the market dynamics um, and you throw kind of real estate in the mix here and you get a kind of heady combination, right? Um, so one of the dimensions that I... Be- the aspect I became fascinated with initially was, um, hang on, this thing seemed to work because people would turn up and contribute their own labour to it. Now, labour, what I mean by that, I mean emotional labour through um, support and being friendly, informational resources. The thing that interested me was this interaction between the social and the market. So when I say social, I mean, you know, friendships, etc., informal interactions, and then um, paying for these services, right? So the notion of paying for community services always, I, I think for a lot of people, makes them a little uneasy, whereas the notion of paying for real estate is just a much clearer transaction a- a- aspect. Um, and... I think I've saying before, uh, full disclosure, my cat, I think, just um, sat on my computer and, <laughs> and did the court again. <laughs> this is, this is I'm really happy that you gave full disclosure on that. I think people, you know, the, the people deserve to know. People, people need to know, right? These are <laughs> coming at you transparently, <laughs> keeping it yep. real. That's yeah. like, if we sounded a little discombobulated on this, that's like. Um, so I was just saying before my, my dad, cat Loki, the god of mischief, sat on my, my Zoom court or whatever, um, that... What, what I became interested in in the early days was this thing seemed to work. This thing seemed to work in the sense you, they created a vibe around these places because people turned up and participated. And you can, you can conceptualize that participation as a kind of labor, right? Emotional labor in terms of 
um, support and um, you know positive positive vibes. But you, you can break that down very concretely: smiles, pats, handshakes, hugs, all of this stuff. It doesn't have to be this amorphous kind of hippie vibe thing. Um, informational labor is in sharing information. I mean, a big part of entrepreneurship is access to information asymmetries. You want to know stuff that other people don't know that's not widely known. So the more people in the know can share that, the more helpful it is. Um, and yet asking for that kind of labor, I mean, people were also paying customers as well as contributors. And this sort of dynamic, you know, like you, you try and monetize Wikipedia or you try and sell off your community garden, like it's always an uneasy form, right? Where you're asking for a kind of mutual participation and then also for people to pay on that. More importantly, I mean, I think you can manage that in itself if people are paying members of something. But if you then try and um, commodify that resource itself that's built by other people, this tends to piss people off. It tends to <laughs> make them not want to contribute those yeah. kind of voluntary resources um, and move to a more transactional mode. I, th I think when you, you and I spoke once, um, probably off audio over whiskey, I, I went through some um, an old anthropological idea on four modes of social relations. And it might be helpful if I um, repeat that, because I think that's where you went. We should talk more about the anthropology underpinning Modern. Yeah, I, I think I'm very interested in that. So I'd love you to do that. And then after that, if you can kind of pivot to discuss how what you learned with, with the co-work um, sociology, we sort of apply now given COVID, I think that'd be a nice segue. Mm, yeah. Take a second to think of an answer for that. Cause, um, <laughs> like me, me, just like everybody else, no one quite knows what's going to happen. Here, but um, We don't, but I guess um, all we can do is discuss and speculate. And um, I also would love to know how you're going in the midst of all of this because you're uh, used to being a lecturer at RMIT. You presumably love being with your, your students and your, your colleagues. Uh, how are you handling it being at home? Well, I can answer that briefly first and then come back to it because I think – I think the future of what tertiary education looks like um, is also a super interesting one in this context. I mean, they're getting slammed, and they're, they're, some of them much more than others. In a nutshell, we're great. I mean, we're, we're living our best pandemic ever. You know, we're, we're very lucky. I don't want to be flippant. But clearly, I wish it weren't happening. You know, we're very um, sympathetic towards people that have been affected negatively. But for, for my family, I mean, working from home like this it suits us, suits me. But also, I think, just the forced simplification of life. I really, what's that book, um, uh, Frugal Hedonism, The Art of Frugal Hedonism. Do you ever see that one? Um, I have it, but uh, I'll definitely pick up a copy now. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a couple um, that sort of in Brunswick, Melbourne, that wrote this book, and it's saying, look, so much of the premise is pretty simple. You know, we can easily get into a feed the beast cycle with contemporary life, right? Like you need to earn X amount of dollars because you spend X amount of dollars because at least in my work as a when I was working as a consultant, you kind of have to spend money to make money. There's this um, flywheel that you get on. And massively cutting the number of meetings and coffees and all of that and just boiling life down to this simple thing where I don't even leave my house to get a freaking takeaway coffee, let alone meet people in cafes, just to sort of exercise food, you know, work, uh, reading, um, time with my, my daughter. It's It's been... We found it actually very positive on the whole. Um, so, so we're doing great. 
Um, it's an interesting experience, isn't it? I love how you reduced it down to simplicity because I think for me it's been a very similar experience. You know, I do miss a lot of the social stuff um, and I don't think that Zoom is the best panacea for that kind of, you know, real social connection. But I have enjoyed um, adding the simplicity to the day that just is like what is the exercise, what is the work, um, you know, what is the feeding of self, what, what does nourishment look and feel like and and that kind of need to rediscover hobbies like reading and walking and listening to podcasts and just sort of having that reflective, contemplative time has been kind of really nice. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, there were weeks, there were a couple of weeks when I, I, it suddenly dawned on me I just hadn't bought anything. I mean, we buy food as a household mm. and we pay, pay the bills. But I just, even as, as small, I mean, maybe I drank too much coffee before this. I keep going back to coffee. But even as small as that or a sandwich. And it was, it was, it was a, probably the first time since I was a, a, a child that that had, you know, an early teenager where that had happened. So, so some colleagues of mine at the Blockchain Innovation Hub at RMIT, they, they've um, just written a book that they've called Cryoeconomics, like how to unfreeze the economy. Um, all looking at this. And the point they make largely is that the economy that emerges from this is not the same as the economy that went into this. It, it, the economy is not like some machine that you can, <clears throat> you know, put the off switch for a few months and then put back on. It's more like a brain that's made up of all these, you know, billions of connections. Connections being connections between preferences, consumer preferences and relationships of supply and demand. Um and that these will be different when we turn this thing on. So your point about the new hobbies people discover, the things they, they were doing that they now realize they don't need to do. I mean, this, this is a, a kind of new world. But do you think, Jules, that people – I mean, I had this debate with my wife um, earlier today or discussion. Do you think that people will just revert back as soon as they lift the social restrictions, will revert back to their pre-COVID life? Or do you think that the, the lessons of COVID, like – uh, with things like simplicity and the reordering of the routine and the kind of contemplation, does that stuff all go out the window or does it kind of stay with us? No, I, I think where I was going with that is I don't believe that the Thanos-like snapback um, happens. I believe that, um, sure, there'll be there'll be a, a kind of overcorrection initially for some people. I think there'll be, let's go out and, you know, cocaine-fueled orgy or whatever people <laughs> fucking office. <opposite. laughs> That's definitely my plan as soon yeah. as this is over. <laughs> You know, what's the opposite of social isolation? That was the first yeah. one that came. Before. That's definitely the direct um, opposite. Yeah, yeah. There'll be a bit of that. Um, let's let's go on the overseas holiday when travel comes back, etc. But I think um, you know some of the businesses that were around won't be around. Some of the preferences that were there won't be there. Some of the you know, um, so it's a different world that will have to be rebuilt. Um, I'll come back to the point about anthropology because it's it's sort of related to this issue. So. I think the, the, the relational model theory, this might seem like an odd segue, but bear with me for a minute. <laughs> I trust you. Go ahead. There you go. Um, what was his name? Alan um, Fisk, uh, Fiske, F-I-S-K-E. In the 90s, he, he put forward this quite provocative theory in anthropology called Four Fundamental Relational Models. Um, and he said and he said these are something like the four forces in physics, that they're, they're, they're present, you know, they're, they're kind of modules of our brains, that um, so they're, they're, they're very fundamentally human, although different cultures will enact them in different circumstances, um, in very different ways. So th that'll make sense when I explain what they are. The, the primary one was um, communal sharing. So this is typically what we would do in our families, where you're not tracking who takes what out of the fridge. It's just common pool 
of stuff that you can all, you know, free game to the milk, whatever. Um, the second one he called, um, oh man, I really should have. <laughs> 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 he called um, reciprocal, uh, it was basically like tit for tat reciprocity, right? So it's like if, if I buy the beer, then, then you buy the next round. And we don't really work out what the price of each beer is. You know, we're not tracking um, the price itself, we're just tracking. That, uh, the reciprocity of it. Um, and you see this a lot with, I don't know, I, I, I'll take the kids to school this week and then the neighbour will take them to school next week, etc. Or um, And you see, I see this a lot in the world of work where people do, do information exchanges. You know, you might send an email providing an introduction to somebody. It's kind of a favour. And then you, although you don't <coughs> explicitly demand um, when it has to happen, there is this loose tally of, well, if... I've done a lot of favors for this guy and they've never really done anything back. Usually that will drop away, right? I give you a birthday present one time. If you never give me a birthday present, it's a bit like, oh, that's, that's weird, right? Something in our brain goes, that's a bit off. <coughs> um, third is hierarchical authority. Like you, you do something because someone has clear authority over you, whether in our culture it might be police or your boss. <coughs> and the fourth were market um, pricing. Um, which is, I'll do this for you for this much money, right? Man, <coughs> I'm having the um, attack of the coughs. You doing okay there? <clears throat> I'm good. It's bad for audio, but I'm okay. <laughs> so why did I go into this arcane description of four um, relational models, right? Well, one of the things I saw happening in co-working, and I think it happens in these other um, sort of pioneering or avant-garde category-defying contexts, is when people mix up these different relational models. So someone thinks, hey, this, we're, we're a cult together. This is about communal sharing. <clears throat> and then someone else brings in a kind of price dynamic and says, yeah, yeah, I'll help you, but um, I'm going to send you an invoice for that. And that would, um, you know, we, we often use these funny examples. If, if I invite you around for dinner, one might think, oh, um, bring a bottle of wine, you know, a gift. I cook you dinner. If you said at the end, instead of bringing a bottle of wine, you just took out your wallet and said, well, there's 30 bucks, um, you know, it would be weird, right? Or instead of helping out with the dishes, you just said. So when you, when you introduce these other relational models that defy the expectations, um, it can confuse people. And the point about co-working, um, or one of the things I think happened that were confusing to a lot of participants is these models were mixed up. You know, was this a hey, we're all in it together, we're sharing, um, we're sort of, we're participants in a shared project, or is this just a tit-for-tat culture where um, you find who you want to do sort of reciprocal deals with, or is this a, a kind of marketplace where people are hawking their wares for prices? Um, the thing I'm, the, the main point though is if you, if people aren't clear about what's going on, they tend to get narky. Um, cool, I'll pause for a second. Yeah, no, that's all good. So um, that, that's really an interesting description. I never thought of things that way, but maybe that might explain some of the um, expectation performance gaps that people were experiencing in co-work spaces for quite some time. I think the obvious question that, that sort of comes next, and it's a bit twofold. So um, the first part of the question is, um, given co-works and the state of co-work today, how will COVID kind of impact upon that? And people, is that still going to be a thriving industry or is there, are we moving back to like a home work model where it's almost like local, you know, home hub 
kind of model. And then, you know, maybe another question to ask is, uh, as you alluded to before in the higher education sector and universities, how much, I mean, we can see, I think some students are loving that they can be at home and learning, but a whole lot of students are hating it and can't wait to get back and kind of have that interaction. How does that kind of field change as a result of this, um, this uh, little hiatus we're all experiencing? Yeah, I'll try and go quick. So on the co-working one, clearly this is terrible in the short term. I mean, if your business model depends on socially congregating people tightly together in shared spaces, really bad time, right? Um, in some ways, when I go back to that, that second wave and third wave model of co-working, the flip side is if you, if you are providing those strong community benefits, you know, if you've actually got a, a kind of loyal membership that uh, it's more than just a transactional access to the space that's convenient, and flexible. Um, I think they're some of the ones that will come out of this surviving. I've seen a few co-working spaces rapidly pivot to this model where the, the, the shared information aspects, the shared affective resources in the form of support and encouragement for each other, they suddenly become super important. Ironically, this is where co-working began. It didn't begin, look at the early co-working spaces, they weren't trendy real estate plays because no one had any money. They were like you know, makeshift, do-it-yourself, renovated warehouses, but they were strong in vibe, strong in social support. So I think, in a sense, this is a time for um, those those kind of co-working spaces to weather the crisis. At the same time, I mean, this we are going to come back. We are going to start spending time around each other. I think potentially there's a long-term play that um, this is highly beneficial for co-working in the following sense. We've run the greatest work-from-home experiment ever conducted, right, um, now, ironically, it, you know, working from home was not unusual pre-industrial re- revolution. I mean, there were no offices and, you know, th- this is an old thing. Human beings can can look after themselves and perform work. It, it's really only in the last 200 years, 100, 150 years even, where we've said, um, no, most people need to be supervised. <laughs> you cannot, we don't trust you to, to be effective uh, unless someone can see that you're, you know, on an assembly line tapping at a typewriter. <laughs> tapping at a computer, whatever it is. So in some ways, this is a weird kind of cultural thing we've invented, right? Um, and maybe that's true for some people, but it, I don't think it's true for the majority. I mean, when you look at when you look at the empirical research on this, um, it's people work more when they're working from home in general and are more productive. There's a really clear um, paper on this, one of the most famous, by Nick Bloom from Stanford where they did a split test experiment. There you go. Pretty, because um, a lot of this other research are case studies and things like this. Hmm. They, with a Chinese um, uh, firm that were a travel agency, so they were, these are telephone workers, half of them worked from home, half of them didn't. They tracked productivity really closely. Um, they got a 13% bump in productivity for those that work from home, 50% less attrition rates, um, and people subjectively were happier. Um, and Jules, do you think um, that's because people felt this overwhelming expectation that they've been given the right to work from home, so they have to overperform to sort of, uh, in a way, like meet that trust level that's been given? Because I, personally, I think that's what's going on. I think that's a big part of it. That one of the clear things that makes people happy at work is perceived sense of autonomy. It's one of the fundamental ideas in something called self-determination theory that someone like Dan Pink in that book Drive um, referenced a lot. So yes, I mean, no one, nothing pisses off most people more like having someone feel feel like someone's interfering in your shit, right? Um, so that's part of it. But also in this particular study, they just said they could clock more hour, more minutes per hour um, 
when you take out commute times and interruptions and incidental chats and all that, um, even going to the bathroom, things like that are quicker when you're not <laughs> uh, in an office all of the time, as, as weirdly micro-detailed as that is. Um, and then the other part was just it's quieter, they could concentrate better. But there's, a, there's, a, there's another flip side to this. There's a kind of negative thing um, that actually supports the, the resurgence of the co-working movement. Um, for a lot of people, doing that over the long term has psychological costs of isolation, loneliness. They feel they're not going to get promoted as much because of the way many organizations are designed. And this was part of the thing that kicked off the co-working movement in the first place. It was a group of people that were working from home that went, this is suboptimal, right? I mean, they could work from home. Um, <coughs> but for kind of human moments at work, as Edward Hallowell called it, is a you know, face-to-face, incidental look in somebody's eyes, high-five them, whatever. These are important for our well-being. So I think the, the positive scenario here is if more organisations allow their workers to work um, sort of distributed. So <coughs> the golden scenario, I think, is that they um, you get less pressure on congested cities so more people can do what my family's done, which is move out of Melbourne. We live in Ocean Grove now. And it's freaking great. But one of the primary things that prevented us from doing this was feeling like we needed to be in close proximity to where the economic action was happening. Certainly that was true when I was working more as a freelancer. I felt like I had to, you know, be hanging out with other people to find work. Jules, could it be the case that maybe people shift to a a mixed model where they are, you know, doing a couple of days on site and a couple of days from home and maybe that sort of is a nice happy medium? Yeah, and that, that was that's a perfect segue to the other kind of wrinkle on this that say that that um, well the headline here is creative work seems to benefit from um, the unscripted face to face interaction. Um, and this is if you look at economic geography, like a map of where highly creative, innovative entrepreneurial work happens, it's usually spatially super clustered in what we think of as creative suburbs, right? Um, there's a reason why artsy types want to live in Fitzroy or wherever or Brunswick, wherever it is, because they want to be close to each other. And usually they want to have access to um, nice urban amenities, to bars and cafes to talk um, and form new ideas. So so if I look at that, um, that example that I cited before, Nick Bloom's um, teleworking Chinese example, I mean, th- these are, this is very almost industrial-style work, right? It's calls in, calls out, how many... How many can you do per hour? So it's very easy to measure productivity. When you look at more creative or innovative forms of work, it's it's much harder to get a direct input-output thing. You know, if, if, if I'm a writer, it's not about the amount of words I do per day. Some people might look at it that way, but it's usually the quality of the ideas, etc. Um, so to your point about <clears throat> what you what what the ideal is giving people the flexibility to do this, but also enabling spaces, you putting the time that you are physically together to better use. That's the way I put it, right? Where you're actually engaging in that creative collaborative work, not just sitting silently next to each other on a computer. That's really well summed up. Um, so in terms of like university and education, um, you've, you've really framed it well, like the scenarios that might face co-work spaces. How do you see it playing out for the universities? Because I think, um, you know, universities can be under a lot of pressure. Um, due to the, the travel restrictions, Melbourne and Victoria essentially very much a international um, education economy. 
Um, you know, I think people are sort of enjoying the ability to log in remotely and have those classes to some degree, but there's sort of that question about what does that mean for, is the university now a mixed mode kind of virtual on-campus thing for everyone or how does that play out? I think it's a really interesting question. What's the future of tertiary education and what are the different scenarios? I'm actually trying to do some work on this right now. Um, you know, do you know Will Dable runs the Fitzroy Academy? Uh, yeah, you've talked to, to me about him before. Yeah, well, he's just someone that comes to mind. He's got a great model of the kind of Netflix of business learning. So it's, it, it looks on the surface like a great example of online learning. And one of the first things he said to me when I asked him about it once is, there's only one problem with online learning. It doesn't work. Um, you know, <laughs> so I think, I, I think of this in terms of unbundling and kind of mixed, uh, what's the word, reconfiguring how we deliver information and what we do when we're together. I'll put it that way, right? So the traditional uh, university form is, is you say, a three hours of contact, a, a one-hour lecture where some boring old geezer stands up and, you know, reads dot points off a slide for an hour and you try and, you know, <laughs> the worst case scenario, but you try and not fall asleep during it. Um, and then you have a two-hour seminar or something where you're supposed to discuss the reading that students haven't done. I might be sounding a bit cynical here, but I'm trying to give the, the, the boring old, old school version. Um, now, we know there's a number of with that. Like, why require, you know, 80 people to sit in a room at the same time to listen to a information thing? Is it? So you, I've got a cat on this and you've got a dog on that. <laughs> Should be fine. We'll do what we can. Um, so that it's a kind of no-brainer, uh, that information delivery online. But the problem is most people are terrible at giving a 50-minute 50 50 sort of, you know, exposition of the ideas. You want to break that up into t- smaller parts. 10-minute ideally is a, is a good um, and, and usually after 10 or 15 minutes, it's very helpful for people to do something with that information. Yeah, so you've got this kind of virtuous cycle of new information, try and put it to practice, etc. I think the potential of online delivery models to do that much better than face-to-face is there. But what, what people tend to lack is the kind of positive social pressure and motivation that comes from being in the same room um, and increase in, in also the kind of social relationships that you might have both with your teacher and your peers it's really hard to get that across online. So it's very revealing at this moment, while universities are forced to deliver online, who's actually good or who's not, right? Um, so one scenario, so I'll put that there. I don't think face-to-face, the power of face-to-face goes away. Um, I think what we need to do is reconfigure the, what we do when we get together, a, a little bit like the work scenario. So don't force students to come in and listen to someone give a lecture for an hour that could be done better through a digital channel, um, when we get together, do things that look a lot more like hackathons and building stuff and making stuff. And um, it's easy to say, but it, it's very hard to swim against the tide um, when you're embedded in the university system, not just on the university end, but also what students expect. So there's a kind of double-sided um, kind of re-education process there. I'll leave with this other scenario. This is a nightmare scenario, I think, for many universities. Stanford and Apple, you know, to some massive team up or Google and, and MIT or something and just say, look, we are just going to massify, um, we, we, we're going to get the best possible people on um, the subjects in the world that we can source. We're going to put all our engineers and experienced designers or a, a portion of engineers and, and experienced designers on building the best kind of digital 
um, experience for learning and we're going to make it cheaper than the current university offering, right? So education has just got increasingly more expensive um, beyond the CPI. It's hard to argue that the, the um, value has increased or the, the, the offering has increased. So I think there is a very disruptable scenario there. This is full disclosure. This is some someone like Scott Galloway is promoting this idea a lot. Um, I think that would be the nightmare scenario for a lot of mid-tier institutions because how can they compete with that? So that's sort of the um, the corporatization of education um, taken to the nth degree model, is it? In some ways, I mean, I guess it's a digitization, or it's it's just just like we've seen, say, Apple and Amazon suddenly jump into um, entertainment, you know. But, but having a Netflix-like offering, they didn't have they had a lot of money. Um, they can buy companies, they can buy talent, but they didn't necessarily have core competency in media companies. It's a very, very solid point. Jules, we might just have to wrap up. Um, where can people contact you if they want to learn more about your work and connect? Yeah, Twitter or LinkedIn's probably the easiest. Um, yeah, um, I'm always open to, to having chats. Mate, um, I, I miss having a whiskey with you, I must say, but this has been pretty good also. Good to have a chat. Um, whiskey would be better, but I think the next time I should interview you about your background with purposeful work because we didn't even get to talk about that and that's uh, i totally to agree and uh, we're going to definitely book in a time to do that because i'm keen to yeah. reveal all of the host of myself uh, on the show as interviewed by jules so yeah. if you think you can uh, crack the code and open me up I'm, I'm willing to be your uh your victim i'd love to i'm sure your listeners um would enjoy that too mate Bye. thanks so much for being here and i'll uh, just pop uh, stop on the recording yeah see you mate bye everyone if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.